it can make sense to go ahead and just buy those things or pay them down and you own them. And when it's time to hang it up, you're done and you own all these properties outright. But what's the difference in that in a big, huge pile of cash that you keep compounding? How great would it be to buy a piece of institutional quality income producing commercial buildings? Well, now you can with Building Bits. It's not a REIT or a fund. Building Bits is a new platform for non-accredited investors where virtually anyone, regardless of income, can select a building lease to a major corporation with a guaranteed long-term lease. You can now invest in the same quality assets, which have previously only been available to institutions and wealthy individuals. Once you choose your building on BuildingBits.com, you can invest as little as $500 and receive your share of the rents while Building Bits' team of real estate pros handles all the management aspects of the building. For the first time, the big corporations in America can actually start paying you. And when the building is sold in the future, the potential appreciation is redistributed to everyone so you don't just get the rental income, but also share in the upside. Best of all, since these securities are SEC qualified, they are freely tradable immediately. The $500 minimum with no upfront fees is available for a limited time. There are great properties available nationwide with major tenants, so don't wait. Go to buybits.us today and pick your property before they're all sold out of their current inventory. That's buybits.us. That's buy, B-U-I, bits, B-I-T-S, dot U-S. The SEC offering circular is available at buildingbits.com. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff. And here is the situation, best ever listeners. Oh, by the way, this is Situation Saturday. Obviously, we're doing a situation. And occasionally, we do Situation Saturday, or most of the time, we do Situation Saturday. And the purpose of Situation Saturday is if you come across a situation like the one presented during today's conversation, you have a roadmap for your situation to help navigate if you choose to use that roadmap. And today we're going to be talking about an investing approach of never holding anything. That is today's best ever guest approach. And with that, I will kick it off. First off, how are you doing, Greg? I'm doing great, Joe. How are you today? I am doing great as well. And best ever listeners, if you recognize Greg's voice, well, you're a loyal best ever listener. So props to you. Greg Dickerson is an entrepreneur, real estate investor, and developer. Over the past 20 years, he has bought, developed, and sold over $200 million in real estate. He started 12 different companies from the ground up. I've interviewed him on the show before, so if you want to hear his best ever advice, then go listen to that episode. I don't know which one it is because it hasn't aired as of the time that I'm recording this one, but if you search Greg Dickerson, Joe Fairless, you'll come up with that episode. So today, if you find yourself, best ever listeners, in a situation where you're thinking through your short and long-term goals of how you're going to acquire and build a portfolio and cash flow, Greg's approach is never holding anything. So first off, Greg, you want to give the best ever listeners just a refresher on your background, and then let's go right into your investing strategy of never holding anything. Yeah. So short story is I joined the Navy right out of high school. Prior to joining the Navy, I had a background in restaurants and construction. It's about the only two things I've ever done. Basically natural born entrepreneur, cutting grass, raking leaves, whatever I could do when I was a kid. So I've always had the itch to have my own business, do my own thing. So after the military, worked a few jobs, got out of the military in 85 to 89, 90 timeframe, worked some jobs in restaurants and construction until 97, 98. And that's when I started my first major company. I was a handyman, remodeling contractor, working for a lot of investors and developers. And 
did 250,000 my first year, built that into about a $30 million company, sold it all, 0405, and learned how to invest in real estate, develop property, and buy, build, and sell along the way. So it's kind of my long story in a short format. Uh, of course, there's a lot to all that. Like I said, I didn't go to college, but I am self-educated. I've poured into myself through education, seminars, training programs, mentors that I had that I did deals with. I learned by doing the hard way. I had a few people take advantage of me along the way, but you know, I learned some really valuable lessons that made me what I am today and, and enabled me to start a bunch of companies and do some different things that I've done in my career. But at the end of the day, I'm a builder, developer. That's what I am, whether it's building companies, whether it's developing real estate or building and developing people, which is what I love to do more than anything else. And that's what I've done in all of my career with all my companies, all of my tradesmen, subcontractors, and partners that I've worked with over the years. So that's me in a nutshell. So your investing approach now, now that we have that context, is to buy, build, and sell. Is that accurate? That's it. And build can be renovate or it can be ground up. So those are the two things that I really enjoy doing. I especially love renovating. That's where I started in the business. But ground up is obviously much more cleaner and much more predictable. So do you have any real estate in your portfolio right now? Yeah, I do right now. So when I say I don't hold anything, that's long term. And I have this discussion all the time with investors. And my situation is different than your situation. And it's different than the best ever listeners situations. So you got to know yourself, first and foremost, what you're wired to do, what's in your DNA, and what you're the best at. And then you got to understand what your end goal is and your strategy is. And so we're all after passive income, right? So for me, passive income can mean owning a business, which I will hold businesses long term. And it can mean cash because cash can be passive income. So our lives are finite, which means we only need a finite amount of cash to live. So when I first started out, I don't even know why, but I had a number in my mind that I wanted to get to that I knew would take care of me the rest of my life. So I worked as hard as I could in my early young years, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, achieving that financial goal. And when that number was taken care of, I didn't have to do anything else ever for the rest of my life. So to me, that was my passive income goal. I knew I had enough cash to take care of me the rest of my life. That was my main goal. So anything beyond that was just for fun and the excitement of doing the deal. And I love to stay busy and do deals. So I don't even know why. It's just how I'm wired. It's just my philosophy and the way it is. So at any given time, I will own real estate because you have to own it while you're doing the process. But my model's always been to buy it and renovate it, lease it up, and then sell it or build it from the ground up, lease it up and sell it. So there's a holding period along the way when you're doing that, but I don't like to hold anything any longer than I have to. And what about the philosophy of buying it and then when you perform on it, real estate's on your side because you're paying down the loan and markets appreciate, you get cash flow and people never sell because they will then have to pay long-term capital gains unless they 1031 and then eventually they'll have to pay it unless they, their kids don't ever sell and their kids' kids don't ever sell. Because there is that school of thought and it goes against what you're talking about where you buy, you build something up or you renovate something and you sell and you're constantly churning. Exactly. I do get that and that does work for a lot of people, but I have some advanced tax strategies to where you do things in a self-directed IRA, Roth IRA, then you're not taxable on that gain. There's also some really cool vehicles coming around this year with opportunity zones where you can defer capital gains into that and grow that 
and grow a big game that's tax-free. So there are some strategies you can use to minimize taxes. On the developer side, I'm classified as a dealer, so it's ordinary income tax through a business. So I don't pay gains tax on the stuff that I do because it's inventory. Mm -hmm. So I've always been classified as a dealer. I've always been classified as having inventory because I'm selling units, whether it's lots or houses or whatever it is. So I don't get hit on the gain side. And if there is anything that's going to be classified as a gain, then I can run that through an IRA and not have to worry about that. And then, of course, there's the 1031 tax exchange strategy, which I'm not a fan of, but it's a good vehicle that a lot of people have used over the years. And you can do reverse 1031s and things like that. So there are some strategies you can use to minimize taxes. So for me, the school of thought, and I've only been through really in my career one crash, and that was 2009. So everything you just said before that are all the great reasons to hold real estate proved true prior to 2009. In 2009, those rules didn't always apply. A lot of people lost everything they had because all the properties were now all of a sudden worth a lot less than they were. And the problem with a lot of commercial real estate is that it's a lot of bridge and short-term debt. So you never know where interest rates are going as we're seeing right now. And it's kind of good and it's bad. So the free money that the Fed pumped into the economy has driven cap rates down on properties to unbelievably low levels because their money was basically free, right? So the institutions that were loaning on those assets before are now the buyers of those assets. So what's happening now is with the Fed since they've eased up on that and they're not doing the quantitative easing anymore, interest rates are now rising. They're trying to suck that liquidity back out of the market. So now cap rates are going to start going up again because there's going to be a lot of assets hitting the market that need to be refinanced that aren't going to make any sense three, four, five years from now. So there's going to be some opportunities there. So I'm very cautious and I worked very hard to put together what I've been able to put together So for me, I'm always mindful that real estate doesn't always appreciate that it can be cut slam in half, if not even worse, depending on what's going on in the markets. And you can't always raise rents and you can't always fill vacancies and you can have any number of things happen. But cash, you don't have to evict, you don't have to collect, you don't have to chase down, you don't have to insure. Cash is king. If you've got cash, you make the rules and you're ready to strike when the iron's hot. So with holding a significant amount of cash, pros and cons to that, right? Pro is what you just said. You can strike when there's an opportunity. Con is if you're sitting on cash and it's not making any money, then inflation's eating away at it. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, potentially. And the dollar could lose some value. And there is a school of thought out there that at some point the dollar is going to lose significant value, if not become worthless. But that was if the Fed didn't stop doing what they were doing. So with the Fed raising interest rates, they're putting inflation in check. I'm 51 now, so I just really don't feel like in my lifetime or your lifetime, we're ever going to see another 1970 where you've got double-digit interest rates and lines at the gas station and things like that. I just don't think we're going to see that. I think what we can see is we're going to see a significant drop in the equities market at some point. There's a little bit of an overinflation there. But as far as general everyday inflation that you and me and everybody else feels, I just don't think we're going to see a significant enough of that in our lifetime to really be able to impact cash. And there is a level of comfort, I believe. I'll just speak personally. I have a personal level of comfort if I think about my investments as investments that I'm continuing to If I'm selling, then I'm going to 1031 so that I'm building a portfolio and I'm not having to constantly 
rinse and repeat and start from scratch. So is there any credence to that? Or because with what you're talking about, buy, build, and sell, it sounds like that's more of the buy, build it, renovate it, then sell, and then get out of there, get the cash, and then go do something else. But in my mind, just as someone who's looking to build a portfolio and have it scale and compound, that approach isn't aligned as much as what I would want to do. Any thoughts? It's not just who cares about me personally, but just there might be other people who think, well, I want to acquire one and then just build on that versus constantly having to start over. Exactly. And if you want to do that, you kind of have to do that. So if you want to accumulate a number of assets and hey, that's a great model. So my model isn't for everybody. It's just kind of how I'm wired and it's kind of the same thing. The only difference is I'm building on the momentum of cash versus building on the momentum of property. So for you to build a portfolio and get bigger, which is obviously there's two ways for you to scale more properties or more bigger properties or both. So in order to do that, you got to have some in order to keep going, because once you start growing and scaling in order to be bankable and to raise the equity, you've got to have a portfolio for people to have confidence in you and to provide that capital. So that makes absolute sense for what you're doing. And if you're holding those things for 20, 30 years, then ideally they get paid down if you're not refinancing and pulling equity out all along the way as you go. And there's a school of thought there. And I've done that in my career. I've refinanced, pulled equity out, and then sold on the back end, another way to reduce taxes on assets. So I've done a little bit of that as well. But there are some very, very wealthy people. And of course, the institutional funds are going out and paying cash for these assets and parking capital. So maybe at some point, it can make sense to go ahead and just buy those things or pay them down and you own them. And when it's time to hang it up, you're done and you own all these properties outright. But what's the difference in that and a big, huge pile of cash that you keep compounding? Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? So it's kind of the same thing. The only difference is my vehicle is the cash. So when I sell that deal, all my equity is coming out that can go into a bigger deal. And then that goes into a bigger deal. Now, if you're lucky enough, you could end up with a problem like Warren Buffett, right? So Warren Buffett says, hey, my problem is I can't find deals big enough. I have to move billions to hundreds of billions. I can't move a few hundred million. So I don't think I'm going to have that problem. But that's my philosophy. Compound the cash, take the cash, make that work versus the asset scenario. Because for me and my career and my track record and what I've done, that's just kind of my fastball. For you and people that are doing what you're doing, your fastball is continue to find the buildings, go to bigger buildings, and then continue to keep that momentum going down the road. And that's your fastball because that's where you're at and what you're doing. And again, I just started out as a builder and that was the road that I went down. And that's just kind of my world. So I guess it's really interesting. You're just kind of born into something and it's a lot of times that's just what you do. Anything else that we should discuss as it relates to your approach on compounding the cash by never holding anything that we haven't talked about already? I think we pretty much covered it now. So there's a risk. So with real estate, you have a risk. So the place can burn down. You could get some downzoning. You could lose your tenants. The political climate can change. Fair housing laws. A lot of states are becoming tenant-friendly, landlord-averse. So there's a lot of risk to owning a piece of property. It probably can never go to zero, but people are always going to need a place to live. But there's risk inherent with owning any kind of an asset, legal and otherwise. When you own cash, really the only risk you have is being outpaced by inflation or the institution that you have your cash in failing, which you're insured at the FDIC level, but you got to spread that out a little bit. So there's other vehicles you have to put larger sums of cash into. 
So there is risk there that could potentially, if, if a bank fails and your cash is in there, you could potentially get wiped out and have no recourse and or who knows with cyber theft, what could happen to a banking system, right? And how long it could take you to get your cash back. The other disadvantage to a portfolio of properties is they're illiquid, whereas cash, you have immediate liquidity. That's one of the advantages of the equity markets is stocks are very liquid, but stocks can go to zero. So I would say that would be the only other angle to look at in terms of how you're wired. And at my point in life and the things that I've been through, including 2009, I'm very risk averse. And the people that I know that made it through 2009 unscathed, they weren't very leveraged and they didn't have a lot of equity tied up in their properties or they owned them outright. So the ones that were leveraged and had a lot of equity. So if you, if you have equity in and guarantee the debt, that's a bad place to be when 2009 happens, right? But if you have no equity in and you're not guaranteeing the debt, it could be a good place to be because it's the guy that says, hey, I can't sleep at night. I owe the bank a million dollars. Well, the guy that owes the bank $500 million sleeps extremely well because that's his partner and they're not going anywhere. So the bigger you get, the more insulated you can be to an event. Too big to fail, right? So that's another thing that could be an advantage for you in scaling. The bigger you get, the more you owe the bank and the more properties you have, less likely it is they're going to let you fail. So that's another side of it. So that would be really the only other thing. And again, I'm not saying my way is the best way or your way is the best way. You can just kind of look at what's out there and what people are doing. And there are proponents that like to pile cash and put it in other vehicles that are less risk or more risk averse. And then there are those of the world that accumulate real estate and just build that and build that. And both models work. I don't think one's better than the other. I think you got to understand how you're wired, what your talents are, what you're the best at, and what your risk tolerance is and what you want to do. How can the best several listeners learn more about what you're doing and get in touch with you? My website is gregdickerson.com. All of my contact info is on there and I can be reached at 434-326-3903. I'm in Charlottesville, Virginia, outside of DC and always excited to talk about real estate and investing in the debate of buy, hold or sell. It's always an interesting conversation. Yeah. And you have opened up my mind to your approach. Very interesting. Some things you mentioned that will help reduce taxes with your approach Self-directed IRAs, 1031s, opportunity zones, and refinancing, then selling later. So those are four ways. And appreciate you being on the show. I appreciate you talking about your approach. Hope you have a best ever weekend, and we'll talk to you soon. Yep. Thanks for having me. You as well. Wouldn't it be nice to buy a piece of institutional quality, income-producing commercial real estate buildings for as little as $500? Now you can with Building Bits. Building Bits is a new platform where virtually anyone, regardless of income, can select a building leased to a major corporation with a guaranteed long-term lease. The $500 minimum with no upfront fees is available only for a limited time. There are great properties available nationwide with major tenants, so don't wait. Go to buybits.us today and pick your property before they're all sold out of the current inventory. That's buybits.us. That's buy, B-U-Y, bits, B-I-T-S, dot U-S. The SEC offering circular is available at buildingbits.com. Are you interested in getting started in real estate syndication but don't know how? My friend Whitney Sewell is the host of the Daily Real Estate Syndication Show podcast. He interviews top experts in the industry to help you learn the cutting edge tools and strategies of the syndication business. You can find Whitney and his podcast at lifebridgecapital.com.